Picture a world where costs are down, profits are up, and customers are clamoring at your door. You're listening to Let's Get Up to Business from Jordan Law. Our interviews with business owners, service providers, and area experts can teach you how to create a world of success and profitability. If you're looking for an attorney to assist in your business formation, employment agreements, or other legal business needs, contact Jordan Law at 407-906-5529. You can also reach us on the web at jordanlawfl.com. Jordan Law, we protect you and your business. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Up to Business with Jordan Law. I'm Jordan Ostroff, your business law and personal injury attorney here in sunny for at least the next couple hours, Orlando, Florida. Joining me today is an awesome guest, Laura Gallagher, who has really an amazing background and now focuses on the intersection between psychology and business coaching, development. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here. Yeah, you're in the right ballpark. All right. so it, it's interesting, you know, we've been doing these for uh, two or three times a week um, as a Facebook live show since coronavirus started and as a podcast before that. And so there's some where it's like, I'm really interested to learn a bunch. And I know this is going to be one of those because I really have no idea how different the intersection of your background is with what you're doing. Um, also, I love you got the uh, the UCF stuff. Mine is on the wall. Yeah. 
pool just outside of the uh, screen. So. Well, that doesn't help. Can't see it. <laughs> yeah, if I move everything. It's gonna like pull the camera out. And All good. So, <laughs> I trust always, you. Always happy to uh, connect with some other fellow knights. Your knights. So with that, enough about me. Let's hear from you. All right. So I'm an organizational psychologist. And what I do is I apply the science of human behavior to organizations. So, because organizations are just people, right? They're just groups of people. So the better we can understand how human beings tend to show up together, how they tend to respond to other people, then we can actually bring that science to organizations, create amazing cultures from the inside out and drive business results. So is that... Like that's an offshoot of psychology. That's yeah. a, okay. Yeah. So my PhD is technically in psychology with the focus on the industrial organizational track, if that makes sense. So it's definitely an offshoot of psychology. It's, just, it's interesting to me because like the most, I mean, obviously like my involvement with psychology is like psych 101 or yeah. <laughs> like Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about it from the standpoint of like bodybuilding. And so it's okay. just, it's, interesting to see like how yeah well but i mean i guess ultimately we're talking about the science of the brain and the interaction of people yeah absolutely and you know so to put it into context i, I often share how i got started in my career which was working for nasa at kennedy space center so um the space shuttle columbia tragedy occurred in 2003 so this was the the incident where during the launch a piece of foam fell off of the external tank, which is like that big orange structure in the middle of the entire shuttle system. So a piece of foam fell off and it struck the orbiter, which is the part that looks like the plane. And even though there were 130 cameras pointing at the launch, they, they couldn't tell exactly where the foam struck. And foam striking the orbiter was something they'd become kind of accustomed to. Normally it would hit in the underbelly somewhere where they've got the stronger um, tiles. And so what they didn't know until it was too late is that it hit the leading edge of the wing, which is weaker, and it actually ended up creating a really large hole in that structure. So the heat shields failed when Columbia returned through the Earth's atmosphere. And so it really broke apart over Texas. And so when that happened, obviously they had an investigation. And the investigation board report found that culture was as much to blame for the accident as the piece of foam itself. So my business partner, Dr. Philip Mead, was asked to lead the culture change initiative at Kennedy Space Center. And he hired a team of organizational psychologists, including me, to come in and help transform, maintain, and enhance culture there at Kennedy. So, I mean, I don't want to go too far into this, and I'm sure a lot of it is protected by, you know, whatever uh, national security um, patient privilege, whatever. But like, ultimately when we're talking about culture from this standpoint, like I can't imagine people actively wanting to make sure that something tragic happened. Right. That's no. And that you're exactly right. And thank you for saying that. And actually, so the, the Columbia accident investigation board or CABE report is available publicly. You could literally Google it right now. You could look it up. You could read the chapters. I think chapter six maybe is the one that highlights a lot about leadership and culture and decision-making. Um, there are multiple chapters really that got into it. So, so in the time that we have, of course, I will not be able to describe the full complexity of all of it, right? But to pinpoint on what you're saying, like 
you're absolutely right. There's not a single soul at NASA that didn't care tremendously about the lives of those astronauts. I mean, they were genuinely heartbroken. And so it becomes so fascinating for us to be able to study what was happening culturally that allowed this to happen then. Um, I mean, you're, we're talking about rocket scientists, right? Like some of the literal smartest people on the planet and this, this still happened. And so there's always a combination of, of factors. And over the years, Philip and I have put together a couple different models of culture. Our simpler one looks at culture from the inside out. So we have self at the core, team, and then organizational culture is the broadest circle. So just picture these concentric circles. And so I sometimes talk about what happened with Columbia in that context. So at the organizational level, there were some design factors that played a role. For example, safety and engineering were buried underneath the program. So if you think about you know, organizational structure or design reporting relationships, you have senior executive leaders that represent the program, which means they're focused on schedule and budget. And then you have the safety and engineering folks, they don't have an equal seat at the table because they were buried in the program. So that was one of the things that changed is that safety and engineering became their own organizations within the Kennedy Space Center. They had an equal seat at the table. I mean, literally, and you know, I was just mentioning to you before we got started here that the miniseries about Challenger just came out, which was obviously a lot earlier, that was in the 80s. And there was a moment when they were making their decision about whether or not to launch there that they literally said, you know, now take off your engineering hat and put on your management hat because there are different ways to look at the situation and look at the problem and risk tolerance can shift a lot. So there are organizational design factors, not to mention external influences, which I can get into if you'd like. And then at the team level, we're talking about communication, right? So how well are these shuttle program managers truly listening to the technical folks? especially if they don't understand. When you've got a lot of uncertainty, like I said, all those cameras, they didn't know exactly what happened. So you've got these engineering and technical folks who are doing their best to explain something that's not terribly certain. They did have modeling and simulation that said it could be catastrophic, but everything with space travel is risk tolerance. I right. mean, if you really want safety first, then you don't strap a rocket under people and send them up into space. You just don't do that, right? So it's always a matter of risk tolerance and like where we want it to be. And so what, what was happening is that in that uncertainty, the leaders were not doing a good enough job listening. And in a failure to listen, it just became like, I don't think this is a problem. And then at the self level, this is the part that as a psychologist, I always feel the most like, wow, about at a certain point, the intrapersonal fear of speaking up started to get in the way. So at a certain point, you know, when they're told like, okay, you got to let it go. You got to drop it. They started to actually fear it's going to have a negative impact on my career if I try to continue to bang this drum, especially because, you know, nobody is exactly sure what might happen. And so you had this unintentional, well, quasi-intentional, but also unintentional stifling of this dissenting opinion. And of course, there's a combination of factors, but when you look at that, like culture from the inside out, even some of the smartest people in the world have the intrapersonal fear, their own defensiveness that stops them from doing what's genuinely in the best interest of the organization. And that's when we're talking about literal life and death. So if you picture other companies, other organizations where they're going to do the best work that they can, they're gonna have the best output that they can and make the best decisions possible when everybody's being open about their thoughts and feelings and dissenting opinions and here's why that might not work and what if we do it this way. But if when we're talking life and death, people still reach a point where they just begin to withhold 
and they no longer do what's in the best interest. Imagine organizations where it's not even life and death. So constantly you have people who are withholding their honest thoughts, feelings, feedback from one another, and then the organization's not going to make the best decisions. They're not going to have the best products or the best services or the best strategy. And so that's a big part of what we end up doing is we come in and we help them get really clear about the culture they want to have to truly support their strategy. And then we build the skills and the mindset and the courage for them to have those conversations, especially the difficult ones. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that, because obviously, like, I don't think anybody listening to this works for NASA. But what you said is so true. I mean, obviously, the stakes will be a little bit lower, but the problems are still there. And I think in some respects, you probably almost have like a more, not a more serious problem, but a but more of a problem when the stakes are lower. Right. Even more people that would have a tendency to withhold what they really think and feel. Right. Yeah. So it's like, eh, not that big of a deal or eh, I'm not sure if it'll make a difference. Or yeah. I'm not putting myself out there for that, right? Whatever it might be. So before we get into that, I know you had mentioned that you all had put together some stuff during COVID, some free resources for people. I want to make sure we talk about those as we continue to talk about the awesome stuff that you're doing. Yeah, sure. So we have an online membership site called Insider Edge. So the company's Gallagher Edge. And so Insider Edge is like, hey, if you want to get inside, be an insider. So it's based off this idea of micro learning. So we do five minute videos. We know people's attention span is short. <laughs> we know people are super busy. So we do these five minute videos and it's actually focused around that model that I was describing concepts around self, like self-awareness, self-acceptance, overcoming perfectionism, for example, imposter syndrome, that kind of thing. Team, which is about how can I deal with, you know, difficult conversations? How can I, what does it really mean to listen? Or how can I get somebody else to listen to me? Those types of um, topics. And then at the organizational culture level, we have content around what does strategy even mean? And what does it mean to design your organization? And what is the value of truly being aligned? And so that's a resource that we put together actually back in 2018. It's just something we just made available and free for everybody when the pandemic hit, because especially a lot of that content around self, I thought, man, this is, people really can benefit from better understanding what's going on in their own psychology right now. And so that was gallagheredge.com slash Join. Join. Yeah. I have join. I have something. <laughs> Perfect. Didn't quite stick. Yeah. So I want to make sure that we touch on the change or exacerbation people have seen from COVID. But I really, you know, what you talked about before, like when you're walking into these businesses and designing this whole plan, like walk me through the major steps that you're taking there. Cause I just think it's so interesting to look at designing an organization from a psychological level. Cause I don't think a lot of people do that. We do it from the standpoint of, you know, the, the business mindset, which I think then puts you in the same issue that you all saw at NASA when it comes to not having safety at the same level of the table, you know, not having that interpersonal relationship being yeah. top of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the design of the organization, I mean, whatever you're doing there, it's, it's all still focused around trying to generate certain types of behavior from people. So it's, it's always going to be about the people. The entire process, the way that we start is um, parallel paths. So we simultaneously do an assessment of the organization while also focusing first on that self at the core. And so in our other model, it's we call it our maturity strand. We work to cultivate higher levels of maturity, especially with the leaders at the top. And for us, it's those three elements of self. So it's self-acceptance, self-awareness, and self-accountability. 
And so when I'm developing all of those things, when I'm accepting myself and I'm cool, like I'm good with myself, all my flaws and imperfections and it's okay, then I actually allow myself to be more self-aware. I let myself see those flaws and imperfections. And that actually allows me to be more self-accountable because I can see all the ways that I'm actually contributing to the problems in my company, right? Instead of trying to blame them on other people or play the victim. So when we cultivate that higher level of maturity, that's always where we start before we have any other conversations. I've made the mistake before of trying to go in and say, yeah, let's just talk right away about strategy and org design. And every time I've tried to do that, I regret it. So we always now start with that self at the core. And, and so is that starting with the, the C-level executives, starting yes. people to top? I mean, okay. Yeah. It's, and that's because I do, I do think that culture is top down, you know, any kind of grassroots attempts to influence culture can be amazing and inspiring and it, it can feel like an uphill battle. So my preference, and I would say 95% of the time, that's where we're working is with that top leadership level. We always start there. And so then we bring the results of our assessment back to that same team after we've gone through that self-work at least the foundations of it, because it's a journey. I even have that tattooed on my wrist. It's a journey. So um, we bring the results of the assessment with our recommendations to say, okay, when you think about now your culture and your organization, here are the levers that you can pull right now. They're going to have the biggest impact on the effectiveness of the company. And so sometimes it's actually going even deeper into the self-work. Sometimes it's about, we want to create a greater sense of community here within the organization. We want to be able to build trust and other times it's, that's actually pretty solid right now. So let's just get really clear then about our future vision and pretty specifically, like, where are we going? You know, what do we want to be when we grow up and then be able to work backwards to say, so given where we are now, what is our competitive strategy? How do we align ourselves to best achieve that future vision and also get really specific there? so specific that everybody in the company could say, yes, this is our strategy, like everybody. So not this nebulous idea or like a 10 page report. that's like, here's the long strategic plan. Cause you know, nobody reads that. It gets put on a shelf and it's dusty and nobody gets it. And then the leaders are frustrated and the employees are confused. So we really work to make, I think that's actually one of the things we're pretty good at is we take these nebulous ideas like culture and strategy and make them really specific and tangible and meaningful. And then once you have your strategy figured out, that becomes the criteria for designing the organization. It's like, oh, this is a machine and it needs to be able to do these things. So like if you're a software company, for example, if you're going to build software, you want to have certain requirements. You know, this is what it's meant to do. If you're going to build a house, you want to have certain requirements. Like this is what the house needs to be able to do. And the organization is the same way. And this is where it gets a little bit weird, Jordan, because when we actually start to design the organization, we want people to remove the individual human beings from their lens. I'm like, just set that aside for a moment because that's where a lot of organizations get clunky and kind of held together with duct tape. When you mean like not removing the concept of the people, but removing like the specific, like Sally, you know, yes. take Sally out of it. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Because that's, it becomes a, a limiter, right? And the way that we do org design too, we don't say, well, show us your org chart and we'll figure out how to move the boxes. Like we can get so tunnel visioned as humans. And so we actually need to like break apart from all of that, put it into the, the pieces and then put it back together without those limiting beliefs around, well, this is how we look today or, well, we don't have that today. And so what we do is help clients figure out in order to truly execute this strategy, how do we want to design the organization? And then if we can't get there tomorrow, that's fine. 
but we understand what we're shooting for. And if we're going to put duct tape on a piece of the organization to hold it together, we know that that's what we're doing. We know it. And so it's just very intentional. So at the point, I guess, let me take a step back here. Yeah. What are the situations? I mean, obviously like a shuttle exploding is one that, that cries out for bringing it up. But like, what are some of the more specific things that like the problem the business has that leads them to say like, okay, you know, we need to bring you in. So some of the most common pain points that I hear, one would be, you know, from the position of a CEO, maybe she's looking at her leadership team and she's like, you know, they got us here, but I'm not sure if they're the right people to take us to the next level. And often what's happening there is a combination of things. A, she's probably right, right? Without development, they probably have hit a sort of stagnant point and they'll want to continue to develop as executives in order to move the organization up. And the other thing that's probably happening is that she's wanting her leaders to make up for the gaps that exist in culture, right? There are flaws happening with the design of the organization. There's something with the strategy that's not completely clear. We're lacking some alignment. We haven't actually designed what we want that culture to be. And, you know, then she looks at the leaders and she goes, y'all aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. Usually both are true. So that's a big one. You know, I don't know if the leaders can get us to the next level. Another one would be where silos really start to form. So a lot of my clients are growing companies, maybe stage two growth companies. Um, you know, I've been working with uh, fat merchant as an example, they were about 20 something people when I started, they're over 120 something now. So you can't just keep growing like that without putting a lot of really specific intention around, okay, how do we actually preserve the culture that we had at 20 people with 120? And so it becomes, okay, are we, do we have silos forming, right? Do we have like turf wars happening? Is it that marketing and sales start to blame and point their fingers at one another when we don't hit the revenue numbers? Um, so that's another really common one. And then I think the third category of things that we hear is like, man, we get so much more done when it was like five guys in a garage, you know, now we're 50 people and it feels like we don't get anything done anymore. <laughs> like our, our initiatives are, are moving so slowly, you know, we're not getting products out the door. And so they can't quite figure out what is the drag on the organization? What's happening? You would think with more people, you would get more done, but they're finding the opposites happening. Or maybe it's not that traumatic, but they're like, shouldn't we be moving faster here? We're moving too slow. And so, I mean, obviously, like, so that feeling stuck, you know, having people not getting along or having that strife on that third one, though, I mean, is is that from the standpoint of because people are burned out? Is that from the standpoint because people are there's too much red tape? There's too many, you know, approval, the, the approval process is too long. Or is it they don't really know what the answer is? They just know what the problem is. It's usually that people are working at cross purposes and that's not and they don't realize it. Okay. So, I mean, if you can picture, I don't know, which metaphor do we want to use? You could think about people who are in a boat and everybody has an oar. And if they're, they're all paddling, but they're not completely aligned and paddling in the same direction, they're really not going to go very far. Or they're going to say they want to go this way, but they're kind of, they go do this and they kind of do that. And they, so that, or, you know, pulling on a rope. So if there's one rope and we're really clearly all pulling in one direction, then we're, yeah, of course we can develop more strength and, and pull it further and faster, but even a little bit off. I mean, picture like tug of war 
and somebody's just pulling at like a 15 degree angle different from everybody else, like that's going to mess you up. And so it's that kind of idea. And the more people you have in the organization, the more likely it is that's going to happen if you're not intentional. And so the thing that, and I will put my hand up and say, this is super hard for me as a leader too. focus. So being able to say, this is our one priority singular, like that word actually was singular <laughs> for like hundreds of years before we came along and bastardized it and made it like, Oh, these are our 17 priorities. You know, like that doesn't work, but that's what happens in a lot of these organizations is they have too many initiatives, too many projects moving forward that are not actually taking them all in the same direction. And so everything feels like it's moving slower. And then you've got people who are maybe support staff roles who are being pulled in so many directions that nothing actually is getting done. They're just moving everything forward a little bit and not just pushing one thing to the finish line. So when you all come in, you know, it sounds like there's for the most part, three different reasons why people are bringing you all in, but are you finding that it's similar problems or are the problems different depending upon the reason? I think that it, there's the, I think the problems are the same. It might just be, you know, how big of a problem is each one? Because most of these organizations have really smart people, you know, I mean, similar to NASA, like the people are smart and then they, for the most part, they really do know what they're doing. They understand their role. They understand the industry. And so there's just something that's happening in terms of we aren't communicating the way that we need to be communicating to make the kinds of decisions to really drive us forward. Or they think they are right where. Maybe they have a strategic session. It feels really great in the moment. Everybody's like nodding along. And then you go out. I mean, now it's COVID. So people click out of the Zoom wow. and then, you know, but like pre-COVID, they would walk out in the hallway and instead of going like, yeah, now they're like, that's not going to work. You know, if the CEO is like super excited, this is the path, this is what we're going to do. And people in the room are like doubting it, but they're afraid to speak up. And so they go, okay, I guess we can see how that works, but they're not fully committed to it. That's the kind of thing where, you know, strategy suffers and they're going to move really slowly and they'll probably do the finger pointing and blame thing when it doesn't go well. And it all comes back to the intrapersonal fear that stops us from being able to have those hard conversations. So it's usually the same buckets of problems, just how, how much work does each one need can be different. Well, we keep coming back to that that interpersonal issue and the people feeling uncomfortable yeah. sharing a, I don't want to say negative, but a difference of opinion. I think yeah. that's, that's the fair way to put it. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So as humans, we are so reluctant to share bad news. Like there, there's for research, yeah. except for what? Except for on, on social media. Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, there's an element for people who are behind a screen right? Where they might feel safer to say some really, you know, ugly, ugly things and can turn really combative. And part of what's happening there is that they're losing this, right? They're losing the human connection of actually looking somebody in the face. Um, and we're super tribal creatures. Humans are, we've evolved to be that way. We really do need each other. And so if I'm actually looking somebody in the face and I'm now meant to start a difficult conversation with them, it can trigger all kinds of fear for me that I don't even realize is fear. I tell myself that I'm just being pragmatic and like avoiding this conversation or I'm like, well, it's not my job to say something. Right. Or it's like, ah, I'm just waiting for the right time. Like we make up all these excuses in our minds, but we're super reluctant to actually have a lot of these difficult conversations. 
there's research that's shown that people are four times as likely to talk about somebody that they're having a difficulty with or with whom they disagree than to them. And we call that triangulation. It's super toxic. It happens everywhere. I've never met a single company where they don't have triangulation happening, right? Like if I have some issue with you, like I don't agree with you or I want to give you feedback on something or you've said something and it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. The vast majority of people are not going to go talk to you. They're going to talk about you. Be like, can you believe what Jordan said? What is up with that? How do you deal with him? Right. And so even when it's in this positive intent of, oh, you're just going to help me learn how you communicate better with Jordan, that triangulation is still never as effective as me coming to you and saying, hey, can we chat? Because I notice I'm struggling with something. We're so, so afraid to do that. What, what are some steps that you know smaller business owners can put in place now or over the next several months to try and, I don't want to say overcome this, but to combat it, to lessen it, to help build that bridge a little bit, obviously short of, you know, bringing in the professionals. Yeah. So it's all about creating the psychological safety where people can express a dissenting opinion, where people can have difficult conversations. And so often what's missing is we're not talking about the right thing. So I'll use this example. Like, let's say that I, I have feedback for you that I think is going to be really helpful for you, but I, I noticed that I'm afraid to share it with you. That's the conversation to have. So not about whatever the feedback is that I want to give to you. The conversation to have is like, hey, you know, I noticed that if I ever have something that I want to bring to you, I'm reluctant to do that. And it feels like it'd be really important for our working relationship and for our business for us to be able to talk about that. Can we, can we talk about that? And we can actually design that together. You can tell me more about how you work and... We can talk about how much we trust each other. We can talk about what feedback is helpful. So I'm going to assume, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that I feel like from what you're talking about, normally that's going to be a underling having that issue with a supervisor or a, or a lower level with higher level. Is that correct? So to extrapolate, are you saying that versus I'm a leader and I'm struggling to give my employee feedback. Right. So I would assume that happens less frequently and maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Cause that happens a lot. That happens yeah. a lot too. So yeah, I think it's probably fair. It's probably a fair assessment to say that more often there's fear when we're talking about giving leadership or I mean feedback up to leadership or trying to give feedback peer to peer. That's where people have more questions in their minds. Like I, am I, I mean, should I say anything? I don't really know. Is that my place to say something? Does she want to hear that from me? And I talk to leaders all the time who are terrified that if they give feedback to their employees, that those employees might shut down or withdraw or, you know, in some other way, not like that leader. A lot of leaders actually struggle with that too. They want to just focus on the positives. They want to just celebrate what's going well. They want to, and that's amazing to do too. So I'm not saying like swap them out, right. but we want to be able to cultivate enough trust between two human beings that they can give each other feedback regardless of the valence, whether it's positive or negative feedback, let's talk about it. And so here's another tip to implement this. So if I'm giving you feedback, Jordan, that tells you more about me than it tells you about you. 
right? Because it's me and my lens. It's how I'm experiencing you. So when we're giving feedback to each other, we're having these hard conversations, it's important to be self-accountable. It's important for me to say like, hey, I wanna chat with you about how I experienced our interaction in that, that meeting this morning. I'm not like, well, you're a jerk and it's a universal truth and everybody, right? It's like, and usually it's somewhere in between those two that people want to try to give that feedback. Like, oh, well, people think you're abrasive, which don't do that, that's triangulation. Own your own experience. Right. If if I experienced something that I thought was abrasive, I want to I want to own that. I want to make that about my experience. Hey, I noticed that I started to really shut down in the meeting this morning when you started to offer your thoughts about my project. And so I wonder if we can talk about, you know, how can we do this communication thing with each other more effectively and make that the conversation. Stop talking about the project for a second. I actually talk about the dynamic here. So it's, it's really interesting that you went to that because that totally changed how I want to ask this follow-up question. Okay. Um, cause I mean, so from the, I, I can only talk from the leader standpoint at this point, and I hope I'm a good one. Um, what, like, is it the leader's job or how does the leader get empower the employees to be able to give that feedback? Is that through the leader doing exactly what you just said with the look, you know, I felt that this was handled this way. Can I hear from you? Or is there something farther than that where you create that level of trust to empower the people who report to you to give that feedback? So there's a few things that leaders can do. One is when leaders are asking for feedback, be as specific as possible. So let's say, for example, I'm experiencing the opposite. Like maybe I'm a leader and I present, you know, my strategic plan and the feedback that I get from the room is blinks. You know, they all just kind of stare at me and I'm like, <laughs> so maybe at that point I'm realizing like, you know, I want there to be more, I want there to be healthy conflict. I want y'all to challenge me and my thinking. I want to know what do you love about the plan? What do you lukewarm about the plan? What do you hate about the plan? That's what I want from you all. What can I do? Is there anything that I can do that would make it easier for you to have that kind of dialogue with me? Help me understand. Are there things that I'm doing that might be shutting down conversation that I'm not even aware of? That's really specific. And I'm also putting a request out there to you. And so I'm, I'm actually modeling giving the feedback and saying, hey, I noticed this is what I would like from you. And I'm not saying like, well, what's wrong with you? You just sat there and you didn't say anything. I'm saying, I noticed I really want this from you. It, how can I support that? How can I help that happen? Yeah, I, uh, so not from my lawyer job hat, but I used to coach trial team at the, uh, one of the local law schools. And what you just said is so true. Like we would have an hour conversation about, you know, evidence and a specific topic and how they would argue something. And then, you know, two weeks later, the advocate would completely not do it that way. And you're like, well, what happened? Like, well, I didn't understand what we talked about. Uh, yes. We're sitting there for like an hour and a half. Right. You know, but, but for whatever reason, I mean, obviously that, you know, I'm on the Jocko Willenick run. So obviously that's my fault as the leader or coach to not empower them or put them in a position to feel comfortable with it. So I just, I like, I love what you're talking about here from the standpoint of put yourself into the shoes of the feedback to empower the feedback. Yeah. And, and just be really explicit. You know, I mean, I talk about it as an acronym. It's, it's Frick. If that's helpful, I can go through that. Be really explicit about what you want from people. The F is for a fear feeling like, Hey, I, I noticed that I'm afraid we're not going to develop the best strategy together if we don't have more 
healthy conflict. So my request is that you really challenge me on, on these things. And my inquiry, it's the I, my inquiry is, are there things that I might be doing that are shutting down conversation? Or are there things that I can do that would make it easier for us to get this dialogue going? And then hopefully I would hear from you, right? And you can offer back to me any requests. And then we can each make a commitment. That's the C at the end. So you've got the fear, request, inquiry, commitment. And that can be a really useful structure for people to figure out how do I get into these more difficult conversations? But if I'm not clear about what I want from you, then how are you supposed to know, <laughs> right? And so the whole idea is be more explicit about what you want, but don't demand it. It's a request and you're, the inquiry says, I realize that I'm also creating the situation, so help me understand my part. And in that container, if you will, it's much easier for people to be open and specific because we're trying to achieve some outcome that I've put out there. And so, I mean, is that something like, do you, let me use the wonderful modern day buzzword. Like, do you set a meeting to have this or do you address it when it comes up in an already existing meeting? Or do you call a one-to-one -one with the employee who you're having the biggest issue with on this topic? I mean, or does it depend upon the organization? Uh, yeah, the annoying but true answer is that it depends. So how much communication debt is there? right? Because let's say that you and I have maybe six months of growing communication debt. There was this thing that you did in a meeting six months ago, you slightly rolled your eyes at me one time, and I developed a whole story in my head about what that meant about how you felt about me. And ever since then, there's just been like rising tension. And maybe we're not even really sure what's happening anymore. If that's the case, then trying to jump into something real time, we probably have not built the trust and psychological safety between two of us to do that. Um, and so having a meeting with the broader team to talk about that as the meta issue where we're not in the weeds of the topic, but we're like reflecting on what's happening in our dynamic. Can we talk about this? And then we can create that, that psychological safety. We can cultivate the courage and we can learn how to have those conversations. Once you have worked through the communication debt, it becomes very real time. And so the next time that we're in a meeting and I'm like, did he just roll his eyes at me? I can, I can pause and just say like, hey, can I check in on something? It looked like you had a reaction to what I just said. You know, what are you thinking? And either you were really thinking something and I've just invited you to share that openly. Or you might be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I actually got distracted because I just realized that, you know, I didn't turn off my coffee maker at home or whatever it is. And so we just get people in that state of just being more truly open real time. All right. So I know that we could, at least I could talk to you about this for hours. I want to be cognizant of your time. Yeah. Uh, so I want to change gears a little bit from here. Okay. Uh, you had mentioned, you know, the, the seeing people eye to eye and obviously we're through a computer here versus the keyboard warrior type stuff. So from the COVID situation, from the businesses still working fully from home or partly from home or more remote and whatnot, have you seen that change the problems that companies are having or does it just exacerbate them? Or is there some positive from this that people do feel a little bit safer about some of this conversation because of the computer? So I don't know if people feel safer to have the conversation because of the computer. I haven't witnessed that. But what I have witnessed is that, especially in the early days of the pandemic, there was a stronger focus on our humanity. I mean, we had a we are having this shared experience. And that's, it's actually very unusual for there to be this global experience that's being shared by humans. And it made it more immediately safe 
psychologically for us to talk about what's going on with our families, to ask people what was going on with their families. I mean, for a lot of our, our clients, they found that almost every meeting for the first few weeks was about like, hey, how are you doing? Is everybody doing okay? You know, are we staying healthy? Like, how is it going with the kids running around and your spouse in the next year? Like, is it okay? And we developed a lot more compassion and grace for one another, right? I mean, I think a year ago, if, and I actually don't have children, but a year ago, if I'm in a conference call and a child comes in and interrupts me, it might be really easy for people to judge me as being unprofessional. Right. Think of what happened today. People are like, eh, that's the world. You know, I mean, I was talking with a leader this morning and that happened. You know, her kid came in and interrupted her and I was like, it's fine. Like that's, I, I'd like to think I would have been okay with it anyway, but we have more grace and compassion and shared sense of humanity. And I think that at least in the beginning, I mean, we're starting to adapt to it. So if we're not intentional, we will lose some of the benefits. But I think that that was a nice benefit because it allowed us to just be human and allowed us to recognize that what's happening for me in other parts of my life affect me here at work, right? And so I think that's really powerful. And I hope that we we can carry that forward. Um, the, the flip side is that communication, if it's not super intentional, it won't happen. So companies that were getting by on the water cooler conversation or, oh, I overheard you guys talking as I walked by in the hall. And that sounds like something I need to know about. You're going to have things fall through the cracks if you're not staying on top of, okay, so, all right. So before we make this decision, do we need to loop anybody else in to make sure we're making the best decision? Or, okay, once you make this decision, who do, who do we need to make sure finds out what's happening? Who's this going to impact? And that's always useful to be really intentional about during COVID when so many people are working remote, the implications of not having that thoroughly thought through and not fully understanding the interdependencies between people starts to have more of a negative impact. And we start to feel less collaborative, less connected, all of that. So it sounds like really we've taken a magnifying glass to the organization. And if there was good communication, we've made it better. And if there was bad, we've removed some of the duct tape like you talked about earlier. Yes, absolutely. And I think that there was also the, you know, the outlier where maybe they were struggling, but the pandemic has created an opportunity to come together. I mean, I mentioned before the idea of, of focus, right? So if for an organization now where before it didn't feel okay or normal to really be human, um, and now it does, and okay, pandemic, crisis, what are we going to do? Let's focus on this. That can actually be very uplifting for people that can really bring teams together instead of working at cross purposes, depending on the impact of the pandemic and the economic impact on your business. It might have actually brought people together to say, OK, let's rally. You know, this is what we have to do. And so I think there's this adage, right, that if you want to really learn about an organization, try to change it. And so I do think that this it's it's like a, an unsettling. It's a surfacing right? It's sort of a, it rattles the foundation. And then we see, okay, so what's shaking out? You know, was it good and it's getting better? Was it not great and it's getting worse? Or are we actually using this to pivot into being a more cohesive team? I love that. I mean, it's, you know, you hope from the standpoint of building that strong foundation that when that situation happens, it shows you how right everything's going. But obviously for the businesses that are not in that, hopefully it's the kick in the butt to make that change and get those things situated correctly. Yeah. And an organization's ability to adapt is an attribute, not an accident. So for the companies who find that they're doing very well and their teams are, are pivoting and they're on point and they know what about their strategy they want to tweak in order to adjust to what's happening in the world, that's amazing. Other organizations are going to, they are struggling to change. I mean, a lot of organizations have 
they're not, they're not in business anymore. Um, some are still like they're, they're working and they're trying to hang on the overall capacity of the organization to be able to evolve is essential always, all the time. You always need to be able to evolve faster internally than the world is evolving externally. And so there are things that leaders can do in the organization to increase the individual's capability to adapt and grow and evolve and not feel threatened by the idea of change. Yeah, we uh, we did disk assessments earlier. And so you're like speaking right to me on the, uh, the, the disk assessment for the type of people or the things you can do to make some of those swaps. So with that, I mean, again, I go back to, I could totally have this conversation for another hour because I this is fascinating to me. I hope, mm -hmm. I hope you've gotten some out of this. I hope our listeners have as well. Um, but is there anything else you want to make sure we cover before we let you go here? So I want to, I want to just offer at least one tip that's related to the adaptability piece. Because I fear that I was kind of like, there's things you can do. And then I just left it there. And so well, I knew that if I asked the follow though, then I was going to have 17 more follow-ups. I know. So it was two year credit that I was like, we're just going to leave it. <laughs> well, so let me just offer a couple things um, that sure. are relatively simple. Every change brings us both gains and losses. Every change, right? So even if I'm about to marry the man of my dreams and I'm incredibly excited about it, like I'm still losing something about the way that my life was before. And so people don't really resist change. They resist loss. Loss is painful. We are programmed as, human to, as humans to avoid pain and to avoid loss. And we're the ones that create the meaning around it. There's a woman named Edith McField who was offered $1 million for her house that's valued at $100,000. And she refused to sell it. It was, you know, developers that wanted to buy this house from her and they actually built a mall around her house and it was sort of dubbed oh, yeah. like, up. have you heard of this? Yeah. Um, this was like, at least when up came out, they're like, Oh, yes. it's the story of up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they, and they even like did the whole big thing with the balloons over the house to sort of like commemorate it. So she stayed in that house until she died in 2008 with this like giant mall built around her. So she was the one, I mean, we're talking about a million dollars. Like if I was like, you want a million dollars? You probably wouldn't be like, no, 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 no. I, I'm going to resist that change. You'd probably be like, well, you might be like, what's the catch? But you'd be like, sure. She was like, no, I'm not doing it. Because to her, the idea of moving out of that house, that loss was too painful for her. And right. so we can, we can choose the meaning that we put on things. So I can focus on the things that I fear that I'm losing, or I can focus on the things that I'm gaining. And that takes more work. That takes more work and more intentionality because we're very physical. It's like, oh, this thing is right in front of me. If I lose it, then it's gone. It takes actually some more imagination and some intentionality to say, so what might I be gaining in this change? And so being able to focus on that, identify what that is, and then focus on it is one of the ways that individuals can become more adaptable. I like it. Yeah. I'll leave that there though. I just wanted to give you all something. No, I just, so, you know, personal question for me, but also for our listeners, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you to get more information about this? to learn more from you and your company with this topic, et cetera? Well, the membership site has a lot of this kind of content. I mean, when COVID-19 hit, we every week we were letting our members vote on what they wanted to hear from us. And so everything from, you know, how can you make teamwork happen virtually? How do you stay connected? How can I help somebody else who's struggling with anxiety? We were putting out content every week about that. So I think if people want to go to 
gallaheredge.com slash join. They can join totally for free. It takes a minute to register and you'll get an email from me every week with like, hey, here's what's on the dashboard today. And there's over a hundred videos that are in that library. You can reply to any of the emails that I send out. I will get them and I will reply because I'm a real human being. So that's probably the easiest way for people to be in touch with me. All right, perfect. Then I will make sure that we get that in the comments. Mark, if we don't have that, please add that. All right, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Jordan, I enjoyed it too. You've been listening to Let's Get Up to Business from Jordan Law. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and would consider sharing the show. We would also love an honest five-star review through iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you use. If you are interested in being a guest of the podcast, please contact producer Mark through email at Mark at jordanlawfl.com. Use the subject line podcast guest in your email. Thank you. We look forward to speaking to you again soon.